Hey everybody, thanks for joining us again. Sorry for the delay, uh, Dan and I have been a little busy. I've been traveling around, seeing music festivals, and I got a new job, so you know, not just all fun. But Dan's been working mostly. Uh, but we're here now with part two of Unsung. We're very excited to show it to you. Uh, again, sorry for the delay, um, but we're here now. We have a lot of good beers to taste um, with Unsung, and it's a lot of more interesting content. What do you think, Dan? We had a really good time with my Korea. Um, the second half of this conversation is a lot of fun. And, um, you know, part of it was just regular delays. But we also actually had a technical difficulty that we were working out. Um, the good news is that um, right after this episode is up and you get finished with that, we're going to have more great content for you. Um, I will save it for the end. And uh, when we do the little end tag... We'll tell you what we've been up to recently and what we have um, in terms of content coming your way. But thank you for being patient with us. We really appreciate it. Uh, here's part two with Mike Crea at Unsung Brewery. Woo! And so to speak. So I'll tell you all about the character and this guy in a little bit. But um, what this is, is is a traditional cream ale. A um, little bit of back history. Cream ales originated from the Great Lakes. Um, they came into the States to um, compete with the American lager. And so being from the Midwest, this beer growing up was all over the place. And it was a horrible representation of the style. Um, when I came out here, uh, it, you know, the first thing that you notice when you come to California is the weather and uh, how hot it is uh, majority of the year. So um, first and foremost, we wanted to have a light beer. We didn't want to have a blonde and we wanted a beer that made sense. Um, this beer is exactly what it, it intended it to be. It's uh, light, crisp, refreshing and uh, clean. You're going to hear me say the words clean a lot. And when I say clean, I kind of refer to uh, no lingering aftertaste, no weird um, medicinal stuff, no weird um, trailing off of, uh, uh, wow, that tastes good. Oh, wait, whoa, what was that uh, sort of thing? So um, this beer where I'm from is called a lawnmower beer, hence the name Buzzman, and that gets into the character. But uh, what that means uh, where I'm from is, you know, uh, dads uh, always had to mow the lawn every Sunday. And this beer is 5.2%, so they could have a couple of these and still make somewhat straight lines uh, in the yard. So um, go ahead, cheers, tell me cheers. what you guys think. Yeah. Now, usually when you think a cream, uh, cream ale, people are gonna go to, in their minds at least, a creamier taste. That's not really what this is at all. It's got a little bit of a almost a cream soda nose maybe, but the taste is very crisp. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Exactly, it's a, it's a misnomer. Um, I wish they would change the name of the beer, um, but so the reason they, they refer to it as a cream ale is because you're taking an ale strain that's normally fermented at a warmer temperature and you're actually manipulating it. Um, we've sometimes referred to this as a mutant ale because of this uh, phenomenon, but we take the ale yeast strain and we ferment it in lagering temperatures, which is um, a lot less, lower uh, temperatures. Um, and so what that does is, you know, lagers uh, traditionally have been uh, uh, said to be like silky somewhat, not cream, but you know, like that silkiness. Um, and some people can say it kind of will mimic, if you have something like the old Munich um, um, Helles lagers and those types of things, you'll, you'll get uh, a sense of like, oh man, this is kind of creamy. Not milk cream, but um, you know, more like a, a mouthfeel cream. Mm -hmm. That's what I was gonna say. Like the mouthfeel isn't like over overly like sweet or anything. It's just kind of you get the notes. It's in there, and then it 
and then it's gone. It's gone, exactly. Yeah. And that, that, that works well for us. We didn't intend it to work this way, but it's a great palate cleanser. Um, it works well with really, really fatty foods, fried foods, um, and uh, it, it just is like a nice rinser. Um, the other thing that is um, uh, interesting about this beer, and which I knew this going into it, but I guess I kind of wanted to um, still do it, obviously, but the, because of that misnomer of cream ale, there are some breweries that uh, ride that, right? And so they start adding vanilla into it yeah. and orange into it. And well, it's, let's make it creamy. Let's give them what they want. And so, um, you know, to some people's uh, either surprise or dismay, that, that's not what this is. Um, and again, it's a nice uh, talking point to um, just kind of, you know, bring a cool fact about this historic style that's, you know, uh, not really that old. Um, you know, over here on the West Coast, so. Well, yeah, I, I was going to say, you're, you're talking about this recipe being old. Uh, I thought it was just an American trend. I didn't realize cream ale was so, like, had a, had a history like that. That's pretty interesting. Yeah, and so uh, the, the ingredients are pretty, very, very simplified. Um, you know, uh, it's, it's a base malt of, you know, two-row, uh, a little bit of wheat, and then um, we add corn into it. And what, what's nice about the corn is, you know, we don't filter any of our beers. So there's a really, you know, if you kind of look at this a little bit in the light, you see it, it, it's got a really nice golden glow to it. Um, it lends some, some, some things to that for the color, but it also, um, when you smell it, you get this very, very grainy characteristic. And, and that's um, um, directly from the corn. So this isn't filtered at all? No, we don't filter any of our beers. Do you use a, like a finding agent to get some clarity? Yes, we do. Okay. Um, we've, we've used, uh, we've tried every, every different type that's out there. Um, so yeah, but you know, it's still a live product. There's still yeast in every one of our beers. Um, some of them, uh, I take it back. There are some that we ha we don't biofine and we just let them sit in the tank cold long enough and eventually everything does um, come come out of it and, and kind of compact at the bottom. So um, are there rules about canning and sending live beer out into the world? Huh. Yeah, um, some people follow them and some don't. Fortunately enough, um, our beer is typically consumed in three months, that sort of a thing. Um, but obviously temperature, you know, that that's gonna be a huge factor not everybody does that with a beer for some reason. They don't throw it right in the fridge, and especially if it's live. You might have some different results in a couple of weeks if you left it, like let's just say in the room temperature. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it'll, it'll definitely be overcarved. Um, it'll definitely, um, what, you, what you're gonna end up doing is tricking the yeast that it's nice and cozy time and it's time to eat. There's nothing really left to eat anymore. And so they start to kind of, you know, cannibalize themselves, um, which produces a tremendous amount of off flavors and that sort of thing. So again, it's one of those things where we can't control those things. Um, but but you know, I still want our beer out there in the in the masses. Um, and so we just kind of every can says you know drink fresh, keep cold. Uh, that's kind of the mantra we have. Does that limit um, some of your ability to distribute to uh, like major chains, or do you have to basically keep to specialty shops? Uh, because it's live beer or is it, um, no, um, really we're more concerned, for example, if we put fruit in a beer mm. that we didn't ferment the fruit 
sugars out. So now that if yeast rehydrate, now they're going to be extremely active because there's a product there that they're going to consume, uh, which could cause some exploding and that sort of thing. Just, you know, they yeast eat and they produce CO2 and alcohol. And when you're in a confined environment like a can or a bottle, it's eventually going to build up pressure. And there's only so much pressure that that seal is going to be able to hold. You know, back in Ohio, um, I remember I, I had a guy, you can only get yingling in Pennsylvania. Right. And yeah. I... They've, they've been distributing more lately, but yes, yes, they have. it used to be true. And I remember I had a guy, and this is before I knew anything about beer, that would um, go to Pennsylvania all the time, and he would always bring me back a case of Yingling, and I just left it in my garage, you know? And it happened to be um, a really, really hot summer. And I remember sitting in the house, and I was watching TV, and I just heard, like, fireworks going off in my garage. <laughs> and I went out there, and I see Yingling bottles just exploding. Um, and I had no idea what was going on, and I almost wanted to pitch a fit. Um, later on, after like learning about what's going on from a chemistry standpoint, it made a lot more sense to me. And I think they pasteurize now. I don't think that they uh, send live beer out into the world as much as they used to. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so that's a, and that's a relatively new thing uh, in America, especially in Europe. There's lots of live beer uh, almost everywhere, uh, but in America, uh, you pretty much have to pasteurize almost everything before you send it out. Um, what's the, I don't know if you know what the rule is exactly, but um, is there a, a limit as to how much beer you can send out into the world before you have to pasteurize? Um, is there an exception for independent breweries? Um, is there rules that certain people won't distribute you unless you are pasteurized? What's a What's the what's the line in the sand, I guess, is it's, what I'm asking. It's weird. I don't know who actually came up with the uh, unwritten rules and sort of thing. But essentially, if you're going to be mass producing, and I guess when I say mass producing, I'm talking thousands of cases of the same beer. And it's going to be going far and wide. And it's going to be going, you know, you know farther than your reach um, through different distribution channels and that sort of thing it's a good idea to uh, filter the beer um, and make sure you're using like, uh, they're, they're called different mic um, graded micron pads um, that are gonna catch all that live yeast and sort, of, and sort of thing. Now, with all of our beer, every single beer that we can, we always hold back uh, a bunch of cans and we put them through different trials. So we do have some that are sitting in our floor. Uh, we have some that go um, and can be um, put in different extreme temperatures. Um, and we see if there's any interaction and that sort of thing. We're mostly looking to see about flavored um, degradation or dissolved oxygen and how that impacts the beer long-term. Um, it freaks me out sometimes. I'll see people checking into a beer on Instagram or something, and it's a beer that we came out with six months ago, but it, you know, it, and the, you know, luckily they don't beat us up too much about it. They say it's great, um, but you know, it's still part of the process um, of kind of walking that fine line of, of, of growing the business, but trying to be smart about it. So. so there's a lot of breweries out there who are uh, doing bottle series and encouraging people to age their beer almost like they would wine. Um, you have a, a pretty clearly different take on that. Um, what's your what's your feeling or is there are there some beers that you make that you think are more suitable for aging? Yeah. So um, a lot of those beers are going to be beers that are um, have been sitting in a barrel for 12 months or more. Um, by that time. Uh, the yeast is pretty much kaput. Um, you're not going to have a lot of interaction at that point. And so a lot of different things can happen inside the barrel. 
Um, but you know, with all the different tannins and, and the oak character that comes into it, um, you know, with higher alcohol type of spirits, the longer you age that, the more you're going to get a little bit more of a unique characteristic. Um, very similar to wine, where um, it, it becomes more complex instead of you know three or four notes of you know roasty, chocolatey, uh, vanilla character sort of thing. Um, so yeah, the ones that you can age are like those big barley wines, those big imperial stouts that uh, have you know taken a really, really, really long time to kind of clean up and finish up. So it's not so much an issue. So when you, let's just say I bought one of these bottles, what would your recommended aging be? So I would say buy two. Two. Um, and I would try one and I would take notes and I would write down things you like, things you don't like, and just kind of like something that you could go back and go, yeah, I remember that, I remember that. Um, it, it all depends. So our stout that we're coming out with, uh, well, the, the, the normal version is out. It was in uh, barrels for 16 months. Yeah. So um, we feel like it's got a great, great age on it currently. Um, some people put things in barrels for eight months and they say, you know, appropriate to age. Another factor in that is how much alcohol is in there. Uh, the higher the alcohol, um, the more that was put into the beer from an ingredient standpoint. Um, and in those higher alcohol beers can can age somewhat up to five, six, you know, 10 years. Yeah. So because um, people shared with me and they're like, oh, I've had this for five years in my closet. And I'm like, oh, well, <laughs> <laughs> am I going to die? <laughs> so you always wonder what, what it's going to be like. They, they found a beer um, in the sea floor. Oh, I saw that story. You saw that story? Yeah. yeah. Um, I'm sure the beer wasn't good, but it was <laughs> it was it was still unique uh, that that it, that it lasted that long. So and did they take samples of it and recreated the beer? They, yeah, what they were able to do was clone the yeast. That's what they did. Yeah, right. Okay. And that's that's so cool though. It I mean, is cool. There's a lot of crazy things. Science. One, <laughs> one brewery, I don't, I can't remember how they did. It. I think it was Ninkasi. They they found either they found yeast in space or they brought a beer up in space and they cloned that. that. Yeah, I did see. I did drink that one a few times because it was really good. That space yeast. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that's how Venom took over the world. <laughs> <laughs> I like that movie, by the way. I did too. I saw it recently because I had been. Um, put off by the preview and I had basically said, well, I'm not going to see that one in the theater, which is a rarity for me. Usually I'm like trying to go the first weekend for all of these movies. Sorry, nerd alert. Um, but, uh, this one in particular, I was like, first off, you can't have Venom without Spider-Man. That's not right. Mm -hmm. And then second, um, I thought it looked, it had a, a, a strange different look to it, a little too dark. Um, especially since it took place in San Francisco, mostly spoiler. Um, but, uh, I ended up not hating it at all. And there were parts of it that I liked very, very much. Um, you know, not to go down a big rabbit hole about comics again, but it's, it gives me a little bit of hope that some of these movies that are going off in different directions, uh, are going to find a life of their own if we can maybe put down some of our prejudices and be a little bit more open-minded like um the new joaquin phoenix uh joker movie just had a trailer oh, come out today, right? like today i yeah. cannot wait honestly it looks i don't know if it looks like what i'm you know used to seeing from joker mm -hmm. but it looks interesting and uh you know i, I kind of want to just give it a try it's kind of like some of these 
you know, I used to say sour beers just weren't my thing. Um, uh -oh. <laughs> but, but that's, but I've, you know, I've grown beyond my, my initial bias and now I'm finding sour beers that I really enjoy. And I found that if I just stay a little bit more open-minded, I'm going to find things that I like. I can appreciate that more than anything, actually. Um, you know, um, there are people out there uh, everywhere with every type of, um, whether it's food or, or, or spirits, wine and, and beer that, that only like Merlot or that only like IPAs and that sort of thing. And uh, coming from someone that truly loves all types of beer and respects all types of beer, um, one of the coolest things is when you're studying for the Cicerone, you're forced to taste everything and anything. Mm -hmm. um, and you start to have uh, an affinity for uh, why the beer was made, um, the historical uh, significance, and you, you you need to know how that beer tastes. Yeah. Um, so there might be a, 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 a flavor or a style of beer that you don't like, but um, you know it's maybe an awesome you know representation of that beer. So you can't really say, oh, I, that sucks. You can say, you know, it ain't for me, but uh, it's it, it's a definitely a true representation of a Doppelbach or whatever. Yeah, so and you, you I know. would encourage people to just. Even try, if you can, try and get beyond the it's not for me point, um, because I guarantee you somebody is making something in that style that's going to knock your socks off. You may not, you know, it's like you were talking about before. If somebody has a bad experience with your beer, you're very concerned that they're not going to try give it a second chance. Um, I would encourage people, you know, maybe this is, I, I'm a, Anybody who knows me in real life knows that I'm kind of snotty and snarky. But um, one, of, one of the things that I've like tried to do as I, I gain a little age and a little bit of maturity, only a little, only a little. Yeah, you're pretty old, um, so. Yeah, I am old, but I'm not that mature. Wise. But my point is give things second chances. Um, go back and try something that you've tried before and maybe didn't like. Um, go back and, and try and be more open-minded. Um, you're probably going to have a better experience. Well, that's the that's how Belgian beers are for me because I cannot stand Belgian beers. Too it's, sweet for you. It's the horsey flavor. That and I, I hate bananas, and that's all I taste. Yeah. <laughs> I just and they all taste the same to me for a time. This is how it was. Like mm -hmm. I was like, you could really. What it means is you're sensitive to that mm -hmm. uh, uh, ester from the yeast profile, and so exactly you. We're always looking for it, and it mm -hmm. and it came out in like full force every time you tried it. Exactly. So yeah. I would totally ignore the other, you know, profiles of the beer. I'd be, I would smell as soon as I smell it. I go, I'm, no, get that crap out of my face. But um, after you know, being a beer connoisseur these past five years, um, I've discovered that oh my gosh, there are some amazing Belgians. And it is like what, like the oldest style traditionally brewed or something like that. One of the older styles. Yeah. So and so there's you know, a lot of it's for a reason, but yeah, it's it's stood the test of time. Yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, exactly. So how can I hate this beer that's like ancient? So um but now like I have a, a better appreciation. I still get that strong yeast sure. pro banana flavor, but like Dan said, you know, you, you, revisit, you revisit it and you, you get used to it and you kind of like are now able to appreciate, oh, like there, that, there's this clove flavor this time or, you know, they must have used a different type of earthy hop in this one because I'm getting some different sense. So yeah, from the, the spectrum of, the, of a beer drinker, it, it usually starts off with like Newcastle 
brown ales. Um, and then you start going, oh, I like the brown ales. And it's like, oh, look at this, this uh, nut brown porter. That tastes good. And then you maybe get into some stouts and stuff. And so you kind of go up that trajectory. And then something happens where you have an IPA or something and it skews down. And now you're like, okay, I love IPAs. And you start getting, I want a bigger one on an Imperial IPA and that sort of thing. For whatever reason, at the end of that spectrum is always, for at least Americans, is Belgian beers. Mm -hmm. So it is the hardest one for people uh, in America, their taste buds to gravitate towards. But on that point, I wanted to make a really interesting comment that's very fascinating to what you said. And it's, uh, it goes back to um, actually talking about my dad. Um, so when I was growing up, my dad and I, we had this thing, we would go to Dairy Queen, we'd get chocolate malts, you know, after baseball games, all that sort of thing, like let's go get chocolate malt. What I realized later on in life that he just wanted the damn chocolate malt and, uh, you know, use it as an excuse. But um, when he tastes some of our darker beers, he immediately thinks in his head, oh my gosh, this, I taste a sweetness here, a sweetness here. And so what I realized was I tried to, you know, I had to kind of take a step back and look at it. And I realized that whatever my dad tastes malt, he immediately goes back to that chocolate malt, that sweetness and sort of thing. And so the brain is trained to pick those things out. And so you kind of almost, and, I, and we do this a lot from a sensory perspective with our employees, to um, open up their palate and just say, okay, well, let's go back. Well, why are you tasting, um, what, what's nutty about this? There's, or, or um, well, you know, why is this, uh, this beer is super dry. How are you getting sweetness on it or whatever? And you kind of have to go back and retrain the brain a little bit and see where it originated from and just, all right, let's correct that a little bit and, and see what happens. Well, I just don't know what bananas do. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> he had a bad experience with the banana when he was younger. Do you like bananas? I hate bananas. Oh, okay, there you go then. What they bananas I'm out for you. And that was the that was one of the other things, uh, I forget which episode we were talking about it in, but we were talking about how um the yeast strain and the hops are what give beer sort of a citrusy, fruity taste sometimes. Mm -hmm. And people have this misconception that it's the added fruit. Well, really, it's the reverse, it's the yeast and the the hops that were giving it that um flavor, and then people decided sort of to add on. Kind of like this beer in front of me now. That, uh, that might be a good a good place to go to beer too. Then okay. Do you think there's fruit in that? No, I don't think there's fruit. Okay. But I definitely, it's it's citrusy. So where um, we where we screwed up? Oh, that's very citrusy. Mm -hmm. That's good. Yeah, I would say where we screwed up on our menu board is we have tasting notes underneath it. The problem is when people come up, they feel on the clock and they have three seconds to order, sort of a thing. And so they see something that says, "Oh, pineapple! Oh, that one's got pineapple! I want to get that one in it." And so. You know, but really, um, we're, we're accentuating the different hop oils. Um, they're, they're breeding some really crazy hops nowadays that are giving off some amazing uh, flavors without actually adding that flavor in the beer. So uh, this beer is um, originally called, uh, uh, excuse me, <coughs> I'm sorry, it's originally called uh, Mega Plastique. And uh, we brewed this for LAIPA Fest uh, a few weeks ago. And so last year we ended up winning uh, People's Choice Award. Um, and so this year we just kind of wanted to amp it up a little bit. And uh, it's a, a straight 7.3% uh, ABV uh, West Coast IPA. Um, and we just cut it 50% mosaic hops, 50% citra hops. So um, the, the cool thing about this and how we're actually making a character currently for this um, is that, I, I don't know if you guys get it, but the first thing I get is just this monster explosion uh, in my face of um, th these awesome hop oils and hop aromas. Um, and it actually translates uh, into um, um, the taste as well. Now, our, our IPAs are a little bit different um, than what um, some people are, are used to. 
Um, a lot of times if people don't like an IPA, nine times out of 10, it's because they don't like bitterness. And I can relate to that. Um, I don't like beers that are going to kind of scratch my throat on the way down. Um, to me, that is, um, you know, is not pleasant in, in a sense. So we do have a little bitterness in this, but the way we brew uh, actually allows the hop flavors to come forward more so. If you bring that IBUs up really, really high, it's, it, it, it mutes all of those volatile, delicate little notes of like, maybe like a little floral, maybe some grapefruit um, and that sort of thing. So what's the, uh, what's the technique to bring the, the hops forward? Because as you're, you're discussing it, um, that's what I noticed. I, I never would have guessed that this was just 50% mosaic and 50% citra. I would have thought that there was at least three different types of hops because I taste um, what I'm expecting. And then on top of that, the nose and the top of the, I guess the roof of my mouth for lack of a better word, um, gets a, a little bit more earthy um, mm -hmm. feeling than you get even in West Coast IPAs. So is there a technique that you're using that's um, distinguishing this uh, this brew? Yeah, we're constantly trying to add as many hops at the end of a boil, towards the end of the boil, um, where we're not increasing IBUs that much. Okay, so you're not, this isn't, uh, are, are you dry hopping afterwards still? Or? Absolutely, yeah. Okay, so, but what you're doing is uh, what we call a finishing hop um, at the end of your boil to get less bitterness, but more flavor? Correct, yeah, so uh, I, I said it a bunch of times, so I don't mean to be redundant, but those hop oils are so volatile, and they're still, they're really just kind of scratching the surface on like doing studies now and finding out exactly uh, what happens in the boil. But if you can kind of just think about, um, you know, a rolling boil of 212 degrees, um, anything that you put into that over time is just going to, you know, melt, die, um, just eradicate. And um, the chemical reaction that goes on here is it kind of translates the alpha acids into IBUs. So in theory, if you can add those later on in the process where they're not hanging out in that environment very, very long, you're actually preserving what is the true character of those hops as long as you um, possibly can. So there's a magical moment where you've extracted the flavor without boiling it to death, basically. Correct. Okay. Do you use pellets or you do you use the full buds? We use pellets. Okay. So that's what I've heard is better. And why, why is that? Um, you know, so um, I, I think the reason for that personally is because these hop cones are macerated. So it's kind of like busted up and broken up and then compressed. Whereas the entire hop cone, there's a tremendous amount of green matter. Um, so just by osmosis, you know, if they're mixing that all together, you're getting an equal share of oil to green matter in a pellet. Mm. So that's my opinion on it. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. So the you get a more even blend when you grind it up first, it's essentially. More, more precise amount. Right. Some hops are a lot bigger than others uh, if you're using whole cones. Um, another reason we do it, obviously, is, is, is full, you know, whole cones soak up a tremendous amount of liquid, which means less product on the back end. Yeah. So um, the, the, uh, um, the innovation of the pellets has helped that out a lot. And now they're coming out with different hop products that are just only using the hop oils called cryo. Um, I've heard of that. Like yeah. They're the, like the hop oil infused beers. When are they going to stop messing around and just make a THC Pop. It's it's never gonna ha well that may happen but the the THC and beer is never gonna happen unfortunately yeah. they'll, they'll never combine those two no. um, but you'll probably find some hop flavored 
THC Gatorade or something like that. <laughs> well, I just, there was a, uh, I think it was a brewery up north, but they have this one, and oh my gosh, it's like a marijuana bomb in your mouth. But it doesn't really? have it, yeah, but it doesn't have any THC in it. And like, it was almost like so pungent of the plant. Oh, that the, the hemp, I think I have had the, 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 the uh, CBD oil they use, I think. I, I don't know if they use, I think it might have just been. They're just trying to match that flavor. Yeah. It wasn't about like CBD or whatever chemical. It was just about the flavor and smell. And like, it was almost overwhelming. Like you're like, <laughs> Interesting. You, it, like well, when they pour it and put it in front of you, that's like all like, you're like, someone just came in and just passed me <laughs> blunt or something. Cause it was so strong. Wow. But just, um, yeah, so you're saying THC beer is just never going to happen. So, but what about the CBD? You were mentioning that. Is that something that's going to be? I know it's expensive. Are they going to figure out a make way? That's that the real problem, you know, isn't it? Yeah, because like, I mean, they're selling them for like fifteen, twenty dollars a pint, and that's, it's just ridiculous. Yeah. I'm not paying that. I'm seeing a lot of. I I believe kombuchas is doing some in different types of things with the CBD oil. Um, some breweries have done it, uh, but yeah, I I, I don't know. It's yeah. it's. It's so new here, especially in California, fair, fair. that um, you know that that was a huge myth. That I don't know who perpetrated or started it, but that once uh, le- weed became legal, people were going to stop drinking. Their money was going to be going towards marijuana as no. their pastime, and we nobody saw a dip in uh, anything. I think people did both, maybe. Yeah, you know, so, I do. <laughs> you know, so. I know that uh, college-age me is very angry at uh, middle-aged me because college-age me would be like, weed is legal now, what are you doing? What happened? But yeah. middle-aged me doesn't really have time for all that. Um, that's what <laughs> I'm here for. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's, what my, that's what my younger, the younger junior partner is, uh, is doing on his free time. <laughs> Thanks, Dad. <laughs> what a but time to be alive. <laughs> I know, it's true, I know. Part of me is just like, you know, all that freedom fighting I did in the 90s really paid off. <laughs> Good job. Go back on the couch. <laughs> um, so uh, you won a, won a medal uh, at uh, JBF uh, this past year? Yes, yeah. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that uh, while we're finishing this one and moving on to Beer 3? Yeah, no, I mean, I, I'll admit it, we're still really, really stoked. Um on that on that award um it you know you don't really um for the people i've talked to that have won awards it's funny you, you hear stuff from them that says i can't believe that that beer won or i thought this beer we we entered was better and that sort of thing and um you know there were certain categories that we were sitting there in the uh, amphitheater waiting to hear because we thought we had some decent shots um not in a million years would we think that uh lumino even though we think it's an awesome beer um that style, I mean, that category has been traditionally um, uh, won by big, big beer macros, you know, um, Pabst Blue Ribbon, um, you know, those types of big, big conglomerate. Uh, so Lumino is a, a Pilsner that was that one recently. It's actually, it's a Mexican lager. Oh, really? With oh, the true style. Me. No, no, it's with true styles, but it, it won in the light lager category. Okay. So um, it won, uh, we got bronze, it was gold, uh, uh, bronze medal. And um, it was it was a dream uh, once I got in the beer industry that to to be up on stage, um, and uh, again uh, it's a true testament to uh, Ryan, our head brewer. Um, he uh, he's relentless uh, at his brewing technique. 
Um, him and I have the same philosophy and attitude. We think every beer can be better. Um, we just need to be careful. We've had problems trying to make a beer better and people wanted what was original. So we, we, we need to sometimes pull the reins on ourselves a little bit. Um, but yeah, that's been an awesome thing for us. Uh, quickly, for those of us who don't know, uh, GABF, uh, what are, who are they and uh, what does that stand for? So there's two big, big um, awards for the brewing industry. It's World Beer Cup, which comes around every two years. And then every year is uh, the GABF Festival, which stands for Great American Beer Festival. And that is held in Denver, Colorado every year. Uh, last year, every year we've been open, we have always entered beers, but last year was the first year we went and we actually poured at the festival and got to really experience the whole ambiance and everything. And uh, it definitely didn't disappoint. Uh, Denver's an amazing beer town for sure. Um, and so, yeah, we, uh, we, we strive to, to, to be there again and, and put our best foot forward. There's incredible breweries in this, around this country uh, that are making incredible beers. And um, it's a great way to showcase uh, the beauty of all of them. That's great. And uh, do you see more so in a certain area of the country getting awards? Do you think it's California? Do you think it's Southern California specifically? Do you think it's Colorado? What's the... Well, um, it's traditionally been areas of the country where that county, city, uh, state is very welcoming to the local independent craft. Um, everyone is finally starting to come around. Um, I was in Florida a few months ago and um, in that state, you cannot self-distribute. You have to go through a distributor. Um, we're fortunate enough in California that we, you know, we do self-distribute our own. We control our product, where it goes, that sort of thing. Um, Texas was another one that took a long time to come around. So, um, like North Carolina is, uh, especially around the Asheville area has become a beer Mecca. We see a lot of winners around there. We see a lot of winners around Denver, um, and in Southern California. And it's, it's, uh, my personal belief and I am biased of course, but, um, the beauty of opening up a brewery in Southern California is can you hang with what is going on down here? And uh, it is remarkable if you travel around the country and you want to try something that is independent and local. Um, sometimes you got to go really far and there's a reason for that. It's not accepted in the downtown areas or sometimes the big beer companies have, you know, really good footprint. And so slowly but surely we're, we're, we're going in the right direction. So that's great. Yeah. Um, let's, uh, let's move on to beer three, cause we're going to hit a couple of little time walls here. Um, real quick. Is this sour aged? No. Okay. Because I am definitely allergic to sours that have been aged for some reason. Oh, you are? I am. It's, uh, I had a horrible allergic reaction to oat tart from the brewery. Which is a yummy beer. It's delicious. And yes. I, I almost died for it. Um, it was a two-year-old aged bottle. And I don't know if it's the bread yeah, or something. And we were looking online and that's probably what it was. But it was funny. I was at a party. Everybody was drinking their PBR. I was trying to share it. and Nobody wanted it. So I was like, fine. And I painted the whole bottle. Oh. And then everything closed up. Um, I couldn't breathe. I couldn't see. 
stuff coming out of every orifice. And I run outside. And as a kid, I was always going to Chalk Hospital for my asthma and allergies. And lo and behold, that stupid little blue teddy bear is gleaming at me which <laughs> right across the street from Chalk Hospital. <laughs> Yeah, And uh, I think it was telling me a sign that I should stop drinking, but I said no. <laughs> and I lived. But, oh, screw that. Bear. <laughs> yeah, but I don't so, know. I don't know. So if I... Has it happened multiple times? Has it happened? It happened with another aged sour beer from Bottle Logic. Okay. But it's only been when it's like a special aged type sour. If it's a fresh sour, like in the sense of like it hasn't been in an oak barrel or something... I don't have a reaction. Okay. So I'm 90% sure from what you told me that this, you won't have a reaction from this. And the reason for that is this is a kettle sour. Okay. Um, For the listeners out there, um, this is part of our psionic series. It's a raspberry plum kettle sour. Uh, Tart, wheat uh, is how we kind of refer to it. So um, there's a difference between some of the things that you were mentioning um, that that were aged and sort of, so when I hear that, I hear that um, there's mixed fermentation going on. So, um, you know, whether it's lactobacillus, um, brett, um, pediococcus, like those types of things, you may have some type of a bad reaction to that. Okay, so those are different types of yeasts, right? Uh, bacterias. Oh, yes. bacterias, okay. Yeah. That, yeah, that's what that's what it was, that's what we found too, is like just the particular bacterias that were being used. So, so the yeah. cool thing about kettle sours is, that um, they don't take as long to sour like those mixed fermentation sours. Mm-hmm. Um, so what we do with this beer is um, we actually sour it in the kettle. And we typically get it to a low enough pH that we think is acceptable for the style. And then the bacteria that was put in there to make it sour, we turn the kettle on and we boil it off. So we literally kill everything that's in there. Okay. Then you got this sour, sugary wort then it goes in the fermenter and it gets um, hit with, um, you know, an ale yeast strain and it totally ferments out. Then we had our fruit and sort of thing. So we're kind of cheating the laws of physics a little bit of getting the beer to have a tartness. Right, because you're not yeah. using lambic yeast. You're adding bacteria to get the sour taste. Yep, and then killing it so that it is not, um, because one of the things you don't want to do in your brewery is um, cross-contaminate. Right. So, you know, Brett, I mean, PDO is really one of the worst ones where it's virtually, you know, really, really hard to get rid of. And if that stays in a tank and now you're doing your IPA and that goes in there and then three months down the road, everyone's IPA is sour, which right. is now a thing. Sour IPAs, guys. Um, that was an accident. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it probably was. <laughs> Actually, I've heard of many breweries, I'm not going to say any names, but that, that like it happens. It's common. They, they get infected and like their whole huge patches of beer that's not supposed to be sour whatsoever. Right. And they kind of have to relabel it because it's like so much product and so much money that they would be pouring down the drain that they kind of have to figure out how to tweak it or, or recall or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Like they have to try to do something about it. But that I know it is common and it happens. It can happen to anybody. It's not because you're unsanitary. It's just that one spot you missed. Yeah. And you have a lot of people going in the brewery, a lot of people doing different things and you train people, but you hope that everyone is following procedures. And sometimes it's so hectic and there's a crisis going on that a lot of things can, can get missed. So it's, I can see how it can happen. That's one of the things that I've been thinking about lately actually is that, um, you know, I've made beer and I've had a beer that, um, came out wrong or came out sour either through my own fault or because it just wasn't that great a recipe. 
um, bar rooms are dirty. Like they're, you know, this isn't fine dining <laughs> restaurants um, and we're striving, you know, in the beer industry to make beers that are, you know, as complicated or more complicated than wine, um, you know, with, but with wine we're serving at, you know, white linen tablecloth restaurants and with beer we're serving at, you know, classed up, you know, bar rooms, but like this is, I grew up in the deep South. I grew up in, in the New Orleans area. This is a, this is a much classier bar than some of the bars I hung out in. You know. I've been there. It's horrible. No, <laughs> yeah. But you know, there's very divey, you know, what's a dive bar in other parts of the country is not a dive bar in Southern California, but there's foot traffic and there's people, and this is still a bar room. Um, how do you deal? I mean, you have a unique situation. Well, it's not that unique, but you have a situation where you're producing in another place and then bringing the beer here and serving. Um, for people that have, for, for facilities that have their production basically in the same footprint as their uh, public tasting room, what what's that like? What are the challenges there? Because I know that they're keeping their stuff clean uh, because they want to make good beer, but you know some of these places are in warehouses and they're, you know, the garage door is open and pollen's coming in and people are coming in there's a lot of challenges associated with that. What, what do people do to, to try and keep that, that line as clear as possible? Yeah. I mean, that's, um, that, that was something that was dealt with back when breweries became a, a thing where people were still kind of learning about the importance of sanitation and that sort of thing. Uh, the way I look at it nowadays is, um, you know, would you, you know, eat at a restaurant and you kind of, stuck your head in the kitchen and saw, you know, somewhat un uncleanly or, or, or disorganized or messy or, or a bathroom, that sort of thing. You know, are they, if they're not upkeeping the bathroom, then, you know, you wonder what's going on behind closed doors and that sort of thing. Um, the biggest thing is to uh, make sure anything from the point of boil forward on the beer, uh, it has to be completely contained and it cannot be open to anything in the air. So you try and minimize that as much as possible. Um, any type of vessel that it goes into, um, it, it has to be pristine inside. And so there's a lot of challenges with that. There's a lot of diagnostics that goes into that. Um, you know, sometimes uh, we've had beers where they tasted carbonated out of the tank. And then when we kegged it or we canned it, 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 it we you know, it didn't have as much carbonation. And so mm. you kind of do a diagnostic on that. So, um, you know, you have to keep up, make sure all of your, your beer transfer lines are clean. Um, you have to, ha you know, have very, very strict processes that there's no cutting this corner. Um, otherwise, um, you kind of go back to one of the worst things you can do as a brewery is put out a beer that's infected or a beer that's got major, major flaws. It's hard to bounce back from that. Buyers aren't going to buy your beers. Um, the public isn't going to um, uh, buy your beers and that sort of thing. So. Uh, yes, we are in these types of warehouses, um, you know, through certain regulations, um, you know, and getting sign offs by the city and that sort of thing. Um, it has to be somewhat of a very, you know, clean environment. They haven't forced us to make it lab appropriate, so to speak, yet, um, which is uh, it's a blessing and a curse sort of thing. So, yeah, because that's what I keep thinking about. You know, any other food production facility, people would be wearing, you know, goggles and hairnets and whatever. And, you know. These are guys shoveling 
uh, wet grain out of their out of the machines, and they're you know doing backbreaking labor. And it's certainly not you know a laboratory or a clean room where you're producing this stuff. I, I don't know why I was thinking about that recently, but that was something that um, I was thinking about a couple of weeks ago. I don't I don't know how they do it. Yeah, you try not to open the tank. Now you have to open the tank in some capacity if you're going to dry hop. Yeah. Right. And so well, that's only for a few moments, right? I mean, if you get bacteria that way, it's by accident at worst. Right. And so a lot of breweries, I mean, we do it as well as we'll, we'll, we'll pump CO2 through the bottom. Since CO2 is, um, in theory, heavier than oxygen, it's got a blanket on top of the beer. You open the tank up and you kind of get a, a big, you know, punch in the face of CO2. So if something's mm. coming out, it's not allowing anything airborne to get in. That's the theory. Now, that's not foolproof, but we try Pretty to close, take... Though. Yeah, yeah, that's thermodynamics. Yeah. yeah, you try to take every precaution necessary, so... Well, that's interesting. I mean, that's a technique that I didn't know about. A homeless person yelling outside. I don't know if that picked up on the mic. Just uh, one of our fans. <laughs> <laughs> and welcome to Southern California. Um, anyways, this beer, though, uh, it's amazing i really hope it doesn't kill me you, you said it oh was, stop it so. it's nice it's a very it's a very good beer it is yeah. delicious though Thanks. so you said it's raspberry and plum raspberry and plum puree yeah okay. um and that's added uh what stage so we added these um a little bit towards the end of fermentation um so that the yeast was still pretty active and it could kind of eat up the sugars uh presented by the fruit um we do use a lot of puree but you know, it doesn't really translate into so much sugar that now we have, instead of a 4.5% beer, it's actually a 5.2. It doesn't really translate that way. Um, so what's the benefit of the yeast um, having fermentable sugar in the fruit to eat if it's not going to translate into a higher alcohol uh, volume, by volume? It's sweetness. Um, the puree, if you taste it by itself, is it's, it's so concentrated sweet that it, um, it, took, it kind of turns it into like a sloppy, sugary mess. Um, sometimes, you know, a beer won't finish as low as possible on the gravity. And that means that there's still some types of fermentable sugars in there, which is going to, you know, add body as well. But it's also going to add a, a so if you ever have a beer and you're like, wow, this is kind of syrupy or sweet. Mm-hmm. Um, that's typically what you're referring to. Um, so, you know, this has that sweet tart note to it. But if you add too much sugar to a beer that's really, really tart, it totally overpowers that tartness. So it'd be really hard to maintain that integrity of, of, of a kettle sour. So this sucks out, it sucks out some of the sweetness when there's still yeast to eat the sweetness from the fruit and it just leaves the tart note more. It leaves a tart, it leaves a tart note alone, but it leaves the, um, you still get fruit flavor. Right, but yeah. you eat out the sweetness of it. Right, exactly. Okay. That um, makes sense, that's interesting too. Yeah, and so what's cool about this one is we've been experimenting with blending different types of fruit. Um, there's an awesome book out there, if there's any home brewers out there, um, called the Flavor Bible. And it's awesome. You can pick any type of food or fruit or spice, and underneath it, it'll have a list of all the things that go well with it. If it goes really well with it, it's in bold print. And so we kind of refer to these books all the time, and uh, Raspberry and Plum was um, under, under these terms a, a really, really good match. And so we said, okay, let's, um, let's see how it plays in the beer. And so it, I, was, I was pleasantly surprised with how it worked here, so. It's really good. I mean, I, I finished mine, so. <laughs> I was also um, trying to figure out, I was trying to distinguish the raspberry flavor 
from the plum from the plum fit flavor. Yeah, but they're so complementary, um, which I never would have thought of. Uh, that I, I was having a lot of trouble sort of separating out the two. I mean, I taste them both, but I taste them as almost as one thing. Very, and that's a compliment because that's what we were trying to do. We don't want one to overpower the other. Um, this puree is interesting to me because from the get-go, I always got on the raspberry, I get raspberry seeds, mm -hmm. which is um, to me different than the fruit. Right. And so uh, that immediately goes to your brain like, okay, I get raspberry, but then there's a huge jamminess to it. And I think that's where the plum additive kind of comes in. But, um, you know, these are extremely popular nowadays. Um, they're safe for us, so we don't worry about cross-contamination. But um, we're in big trouble if we don't have a sour on tap, especially on weekends. Um, that's, um, that's one thing that I wanted to say uh, with regard to the contamination issue. Um, most people think bacteria and they think, oh, my God, that's like the worst possible thing that can happen to a beer. <laughs> um, one of the reasons that I was anti-sour for so long is because uh, lambic yeast is the yeast that you don't want in your wine. That's why they collect uh, wine grapes at a certain time of day is to you know, make sure they don't get that lambic yeast so they don't have sour wine. You know, the famous line from uh, the Charlton Heston movie about Michelangelo is, if the wine is sour, throw it out. <laughs> um, and so I was just very anti-sour beer. I said, look, this might be a trend, but it's a BS trend because they're using the, you know, they're using the yeast you don't want to use. And that's not the technique that you're using here and that's not the technique that I think a lot of brewers are using and I guess I, I didn't really appreciate that until just just now um, you're actually using the right kind of bacterias with a different kind of yeast not the lambic yeast to get the tartness can you tell us about that and tell us about the technique a little bit yeah for sure um, a lot of people are surprised by this but um, we uh, uh, with our sours kettle sours we've used actually Greek yogurt to get that sourness as the bacteria. So there's a tremendous amount of probiotics that are in yogurt, as everyone knows. Uh, one of them being uh, plantarium, uh, lactobacillus, those types of things. And so that is what um, starts to eat at the sugary wort and translate it into um, lowering the pH. So the lower pH, the more pucker face you're gonna get. Um, the, 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 the one problem with that is, just like we talked about with beer leaving the brewery, you don't know what happened to that yogurt. Um, you don't know, now we know it stayed in good temperatures because all dairy has to be regulated that way, but, and it's dated and coated, but you really don't know how much of that plantarium is in each jug, right? So sometimes we're blindly throwing in those jugs and a beer that should sour up within a day or two actually now is taking four or five days because there wasn't enough of that bacteria to you know start growing and growing and growing. Um, so we found other ways where we're able to still give a nice unique character from the yogurt, but also make sure that we're adding the right amount of cells. So just can you test that siren? Can you test that in advance? I'm, I'm very curious about that. I feel like I had a, a huge door open to me that I hadn't thought about it before. Can you test um, can you test the yogurt to make sure? you've got enough bacteria in that batch, or what do you do for quality control of that stuff? Well, we, we also have used another thing called uh, Good Belly, which you can find at the grocery store. Yeah. And it says on there how many billions of cells of those different strands are in each jug. So you can come up with a formula to match the amount of volume that you have in your work. Mm -hmm. um, there's also plantarium tablets, and those tablets have a certain amount um, that'll add into the beer. 
Um, but no, when it comes to the yogurt, it is what it is. Um, there's, they haven't really learned, uh, or I guess they say been told that they need to, um, notify that all on the nutritional standpoint. So, all right. So people out there who were, uh, anti-sour, they found a, uh, a very scientific workaround and, uh, maybe that's what, I don't know. Maybe that's why I'm uh, more open-minded and more sours I've tasted haven't, um, hit sort of the wrong place in my tongue because it's not really wild yeast, you know, like some of the early sours I think were, um, they've got, they've got a, a new technique now to, to sour up beers. I'd like to go, oh, I'm sorry. I just want to do one, one little disclaimer. Um, so I, I'll be the first, there's, then there's a reason we call these kettle sours because we want to make sure that we're showing a distinction between, um, you know, how sours are, are authentically made and how we did this one. Um, these are typically going to be a lot more cleaner on the palate, you know, um, the other ones are going to have a lot more complexities to it. Um, sometimes used with different ale strains in the, in the primary and then, uh, bacteria is added, uh, later on. So, um, we're not trying to, uh, come out with this saying here, these are sours. This is what sours are. No, there's a definite difference between the two. Um, again, we do this because we can punch these out pretty quick. Um, and the, the popularity of this beer, um, style is so, uh, huge nowadays that we don't have the capacity to just be sitting on 60, 70 wine barrels and totally. hopefully, hopefully they, you know, they sour up properly, um, you know, over time. So, yeah. All right. Well, that's, that's a question to ask. Yeah. I mean, that's something that I really want to think about. I know that there's, you know, very famous breweries, the brewery, for instance, that does a lot of sours. I want to know. I want to know what their process is now. I'm very curious about that. I hope we get a chance to talk to them someday about it all. Yeah. So, well, what's mo most important to me is that I can drink them. <laughs> right. And then also, you know, Dan was wrong again. So we should do a segment every week. Dan was wrong. Dan, Dan was, was right. Wrong. Yeah. What? <laughs> no, there's a, there's a podcast my wife listens to where they do like an errors and errors and omissions tag at the end. We should probably do we, that. We should do that. Um, but no, uh, that's like that's fascinating i know well like i knew that like the kettle sours like were a different process like you were explaining but i did realize yeah. how dramatically different it was and i mean thank you for sharing your knowledge about it i mean yeah, now i'll have a little bit more you know safety going in when someone hands me a beer that you know was this kettle sour or was this yeah kettle yeah. or was it you know in the in the boonies for three years now. So <laughs> also, I want to take you into a lab and find out exactly what you're allergic to now. Dissect <laughs> me. Yeah. <laughs> Have you done that thing where they prick? You know. Oh your yeah. Arm well, I grew up with horrible allergies my uh, whole childhood. I mean, when sad. they did that, when they did the prick test, you Everything? know what I looked like? I looked like one of your comic book heroes. I was <laughs> a mess. It was it was horrible. Um, I don't mean to laugh. But no, it's okay. It's like it's what I grew up with, but. Um, no, yeah, it was just, I always had them. And I used to get shots every week in my arms for years. Oh, so it's, wow. if we didn't have modern medicine, I would be dead a long <laughs> time ago, I'll tell you that. So. Well, uh, certainly we don't have to worry about that here. Uh, science and uh, sanitation and thoughtfulness about exactly what's going in and what's coming out seem to be um, almost uh, almost an obsession for you. Yeah. Uh, it's certainly a passion, and I encourage everybody to come down here to the Unsung uh, Tap Room. If you have ever seen a comic book movie or ever read a comic book, 
you are going to totally geek out uh, with the atmosphere and the ambience. Um, and I can tell you that uh, once again, we've um, really struck gold with a brewery whose beers have exceeded every expectation we had coming in. Uh, and we can't wait to try more of the selections from, uh, from Mike Korea and Unsung Brewing. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Yeah, it was great. Thank you so much for listening to part two. Uh, we hope you had as much fun as we did. Uh, go to Unsung. It is right by the Anaheim Packing House. Uh, it's a very cool tasting room. The beer is great. The atmosphere is great. A lot of the toys that are up in the shadow boxes there are the display cases are 1977, 1978 original Star Wars stuff. They had to put them in cases to keep people from, you know, just sort of walking off with them. They're that great. Connor? Yeah, I mean, holy crap. I mean, just the just the collection alone. I I, yeah. I was nerding out. My dad grew me up like collecting those figurines. And things, after but, after I mean, we stopped <laughs> talking, we actually like were pointing at the toys and we were yeah. like, oh, I didn't see that one. <laughs> well, anyways, if you go in there and say any spoilers of Endgame, you're going to get smacked. That's uh, all I know. Everybody yeah. who's in there has already seen it. They've already, that's true. That's true. But just <laughs> just – just know uh, the audience are going into a uh, very, very awesome uh, uh, lifestyle of these people that have created uh, this. I mean, and they just integrated such a great culture with beer. I mean, I haven't seen that as far as like comic books or that to total like Marvel scene, DC scene. I haven't really seen that in a brewery. And so it was really cool. I think it helps that we like those things. Well, true. But you if are, you like you those are, things, you are you're going to nerd out. Yeah, you're going to nerd out just as much yeah, as we did. Too. Yeah. All right. But, so thank you. Um, let me Let me give you a little preview. We um, finagled our way in, thank you, Erica, to the uh, OC Brewers Guild Invitational. Yeah. It was a great event. We were there. We were recording the whole time, and it was very unscripted. We were um, having brewers come on in and talk to us for sort of quick hits, 10-minute hits. It was so fun, and we, so we, fun. We, we ran out of time. We literally ran out of time. We couldn't talk to everybody that we wanted to. So it was it was great hearing from everybody. And we got a lot of things lined up with other breweries that definitely want to talk to us more. Uh, we made new friends. We're so hanging out with friends. we were hanging out with old friends. I mean, it was such a great experience. And then I ran off to work. It was horrible, but um, <laughs> that's true. It was, a, it was a great day. It was a great day. And that that episode will be up when Dan. Honestly, I think since we caused a little bit of a delay, we should get that episode up as soon as possible. So if you're listening to the end of this episode right now, um, you won't have long to wait to tune in to your next episode. Hell yeah. All, All right. right. Thank you for listening. We're the Hollywood Growler. See you next time. See ya. <laughs>